You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. There's almost no product today on the market which won't use machine learning and artificial intelligence technology in one way or another. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from Harbor Labs and the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, Carol Terrio is back. She's talking AI with Vanya Schweitzer, Threat researcher at Cisco Talos. But first, a word from our sponsor, Know Before. Where would InfoSec professionals be without users making security mistakes? Working less than 60 hours per week, perhaps. Actually having a weekend every so often. We get it. User behavior can be a challenge. But users can also be an InfoSec professional's greatest asset once properly equipped. What do we mean by that? Well, stay with us, and in a few minutes, we'll hear from our sponsors at Know Before on that very question. All right, Joe, uh, before we jump into our stories, got a little bit of quick follow-up here. Yes, last week I was questioning the origin of the term Yahoo Boy for Uh the group in Dallas-Fort Worth. Okay. Uh, And I have learned uh, recently that that is not isolated to the Dallas-Fort Worth area. It's a common term uh, for Nigerian scammers. And it uh, it, it does, in fact, refer to the fact that they open up a bunch of Yahoo accounts. Oh, (laughs) all right. Oh, and guess where I learned that? The internet? I, <laughs> the <what>? Yahoo? <laughs> nope. I learned that from listening to the Lazarus Heist podcast, which ah. I, I said last week I would listen to. I'm currently listening to the most recent episode. I'm all caught up, Dave. All right. It all comes full circle there, it does. doesn't it? <laughs> and I'll tell you, that podcast is riveting. It's oh, yeah. It's really good. No, it's good stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, if you have not uh, done so, highly recommend. Check it out. Yep. All right, well, let's jump into our stories this week. Uh, Mine comes from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, This is actually uh, written by Joanna Stern and uh, Nicole Goyen, uh, who uh, are well-known over at the the Journal, uh, particularly Joanna Stern. There's a lot of um, interesting videos and stuff. But um, this article uh, is about folks stealing people's iPhones— and then being able to access the contents of the iPhone to steal lots of money from the iPhone owner. Hmm. So let me set the stage here. Okay. Uh, the, the, what this article initially sets up is the story of a gentleman who is um, actually a woman who is leaving a bar in New York. And uh, someone who she had just met at the bar and struck up a conversation with grabbed her iPhone and ran off. Hmm. Uh, and within minutes, uh, she could no longer get into her Apple account and or any of the stuff uh, associated with it. And over the next 24 hours, about 10 grand vanished from her bank account. Wow. Yeah. So this story or this uh, article here in the journal goes through several examples of this where people are in some kind of public place 
They're using their iPhone. Uh, perhaps some strangers come up, strike up a conversation with them, start talking about, oh, you know, do, do, you, do you have any interesting photos in your phone, whatever, this, that, and the other thing. And when one way or another, the phone ends up getting stolen. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they get locked out of their iCloud account or their Apple account. And uh, also things uh, like their bank accounts get drained. Right. Um, Apple credit card accounts are opened in their name and drained. Um, there are a couple of uh, cases in here where they talk about um, someone was drugged and they 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 got into the person's phone after huh. that. Kind of like a roofie kind of thing. That's it was actually, actually a gentleman who was, uh, yeah, woke up the next morning, uh, his phone is gone, and... $1,500 was stolen from his Venmo account. Did he still have his kidneys? <laughs> he did still have his okay. kidneys, yes. Um, so here's what's going on. And 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 I'm really presenting this as, as a setup to another question I want to ask you in a second. So it seems as though what's going on is that people are shoulder surfing folks with iPhones to see what their passcode is. To, they're prompting them to enter their passcode. Right. And then either with a partner or themselves, they try to shoulder surf to see what the passcode is, look over their shoulder as they enter the passcode. And then after, once they have the passcode, they steal the device. Now they can get in the device. Once they're in the device, that's pretty much the ball game. Right. For right. most apps. There are some apps that have an additional layer of security. They'll either have their own password or they will use, you can face set ID. them up so they use Face ID, which is an added layer of protection. But I would venture to say for most people who are using their iPhones, that passcode, uh, which is typically a number, not a password, right. is really all you need to get in there. And now you got access to all kinds of things that are in someone's phone. Do you remember when someone posted a video online of Kanye West? Entering his Apple password. Yes, he was. He was sitting in the the Oval Office. Right yes. in the Oval Office. Yes, and it was all zeros. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Someone of his stature and uh, notoriety should certainly have a more secure method of logging into his. I, phone. I would agree. <laughs> so, um, so this is all terrible, and I think the lesson here is clear uh, that. Same thing as when you're entering your PIN for your ATM card or anything like that. Mm-hmm. If you find yourself in a situation where you need to enter your iPhone passcode, be careful of that. Protect that. You know, put your hand over it or whatever uh, so that other people can't see it. Um, but uh, the the other thing that I wanted to specifically dig into you with here, Joe, is do you think that having all this information in your mobile device. Mm-hmm. The device that you take with you everywhere you go. That's right. Right. Is it more secure than your physical wallet? Hmm. I would say if you configure it properly, yeah, it can be. Yeah. Like, for example, if you use uh, Face ID to lock your phone. Right. And that's a pretty good biometric to... Uh, to to secure the phone. Yeah. But I don't know how Face ID works. I know that this phone here, this uh, 
very disappointing Google Pixel 6, <laughs> which... There goes that Google sponsorship. Right, yeah, exactly. Uh, sorry about that, Dave. Sorry. It's okay. Sorry, Peter. <laughs> but this very disappointing Google Pixel 6 has this fingerprint sensor on the screen. Yeah. And very often, like, if my if my hand is uh, wet, mm-hmm. like, um, or, or or if my if something's up, or if my hand is very dry as well, hmm. it... it like if I'm walking in the wintertime, I have a hard time unlocking that phone. After two tries, it says, enter your passcode. Oh. So if somebody knows my uh, my passcode, all they have to do is hit that fingerprint sensor twice, get two fails, and it'll ask for the passcode. Right. Um, so if they know the passcode they're in, and you're right, they can uh, – I mean, the only thing on my phone financially – is a, uh, a a stupid cryptocurrency wallet that has a little bit of crypto in it. Okay. <laughs> I think it might be like 20 bucks right now. Right. right. Um, so they'd get that. But I don't have my banking information on my phone. Okay. I do have credit cards on the phone, though. Yeah. So um, there you go. So I have Google Wallet. Um, yep. Yep. Uh, yeah, I don't know. That's a good question, Dave. Right. So more- just think about you've got your physical wallet that has your credit cards in it. Right. You have your mobile device that has the information of your credit cards in it. In both of these cases, the object is being stolen. Yeah. Right? Right. Either the wallet or the phone is being stolen. I think that the phone is probably more secure. Yeah. Um, In that you don't need a passcode to open the wallet. You don't need a passcode to open your wallet, right. Right. And And there's a chance that it will will not, you know, if they don't know the passcode, they're they're not going to get through the biometrics. Right. Right. They're they're okay. They're pretty good, I'd yeah. say. Um, yeah, but once I have your credit cards and presumably your driver's license and, you know, who knows what else, all the things you keep in your wallet. Right. Maybe a little bit of cash, um, which you probably don't have in your mobile device, right? <laughs> I don't have any cash in my wallet either, though. Right, so. right. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know. It just got me thinking about this. I, I saw a couple posts from other people responding to this Wall Street Journal article and uh, making the case that despite this being a possibility that it's still more secure than a physical wallet, um, I think that's probably true. I, I don't know that it's a huge difference. Again, you know, both of these will require the boldness of, of a theft, of a right. physical theft. Correct. Well, I will tell you the big difference is they're not getting into my bank account with, by stealing my uh, wallet. Mm. Right, they're not going to transfer huge amounts of money out and and you know essentially Venmo themselves whatever it is and I imagine that's how the money got out of these accounts is with um, by Venmoing yeah right? yeah um, so or maybe whatever the other money transfer app is so that's that's not in your wallet yeah um, but again if you secure it properly and and don't I mean, but then, you know, here we go back, putting the onus back on the user. Um, And I'm not sure that's the right answer for this. Another thing this article points out is that uh, one of the victims of of this uh, series of crimes, and and there there are a couple of cases here where they they found the people who were doing these crimes, and they were arrested and and put in jail. Yeah, it says here one person got a 57-month sentence. Right, right. So... Um, one of the things that one of the victims noticed when he actually got his device back was that the bad guys had gone through his photos 
and had searched for personal information like social security numbers, any, anything, any documents that he had scanned or taken photos of, mm. you know, all of that stuff these days is automatically OCR'd. And so you can search for things like, in this article points out, you can search for SSN, social security number. And if that's in your photos gallery, it'll come up. Well, let me, hold on. Let me conduct a real quick experiment here. <laughs> okay. And this, this guy oh, okay. had found that the bad guys had actually created a new folder in his photos app that contained uh, all of his personal documents that he had taken photos of or scanned or, you know, that were contained in the phone. Which... Because I keep documents like that in a product called Stack. Okay. Uh, which is a Google product. It lets you do scanning from your, your cell phone. Yep. Uh, but I just opened it right now, and it's asking me to fingerprint or face log in for stack access. Okay. Well, so, that's good. So there's a second layer. Stack has its own bit of security on top of just logging into the right. phone. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, well, I'm, I'm using a finger I don't have as a, uh, as a test here, and it's not letting me in at all. Okay. So uh, it says, can't get in, try again. All right. So I'm, it's not even giving me the opportunity to enter my uh, passcode. Yeah. So Stack is, I would say, pretty secure. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, uh, so that's what I wanted to talk about today. Like I say, I, I, this article kind of got me thinking about this notion of the, the physical wallet versus the digital wallet. I guess the other thing I'll add is that paying for things with your digital wallet, I think, is more secure because it's all tokenized. Correct, yeah, I would agree with um, that. There's really, you're not going to ever get your uh, digital wallet uh, skimmed. That's just right. not really an option. It's not how that works. Right, right, exactly. All right, it's an interesting read, and I, and I recommend folks uh, check it out. It's, uh, again, over at the Wall Street Journal uh, about uh, a basic iPhone feature helps criminals steal your entire digital life. So do check that out. <laughs> That's what I have. Joe, what do you got for us this week? Dave, my story comes from the BBC, and it's written by a group of people, Max Hudson, Simona Wineglass, Mark Turner, and Joel Gunter. Okay. And... The title of this article is On the Hunt for the Businessmen Behind a Billion-Dollar Scam. Hmm. So there is a group of people out there that has literally scammed over a billion dollars from their victims. Wow. Which is pretty big. <laughs> pretty I soon mean, you're talking about real money. Right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the only one I'm – the only scam like to that order of magnitude by a single group of people that I'm aware of is OneCoin. Hmm. Uh, which is uh, actually, I think it's actually still an ongoing scam. Okay. Um, there's still websites up and everything and organizations out there for it, but the founder has disappeared and nobody is getting their money back. Okay. Uh, but this group was originally called the Milton Group. Hmm. Uh, and, and that's what law enforcement is still calling them, but they've dropped that name because uh, of law enforcement's involvement. They're also <laughs> called Solo Capital, okay. and they have... Lots of other names, like 152 other names is what the article says. Wow. And some of these names have even sponsored Spanish football teams. What? I'm not joking, Dave. <laughs> these guys are big. These guys have scammed billions of, a billion dollars out of somebody. They can write a check for a sponsorship, which kind of lends them credibility. Not only that, <laughs> but they've also bought advertising in newspapers. For what? For their, for their companies. They're fake companies. They're companies that scam people out of service. Uh, okay, I see. Okay, I, I'm, I'm catching on now. Okay. So, go on. <laughs> so, the, the 
organization is run out of Georgia, not Georgia uh, like in Atlanta, but Georgia is in Tbilisi. Okay. They're, uh, it's, it's the, the, the BBC actually went on a raid into one of the call centers in Tbilisi. Okay. Uh, and where German and, and Georgian police raided this call center where they found all kinds of data with people's personal identifiable information on it. Hmm. Row after row after row of it. And there were some things written on paper as well. And one of the notes said on, on the paper said, should scam soon. Hmm. It, like about a person. Okay. So the person has $10,000. They get in there and they ask all this all these questions. But it's these are typically, or these are the typical investment scams. Mm-hmm. So they have a bunch of different uh, different companies out there. Some of them are regulated and some of them are are not regulated. So the, so even in the setup of some of these fake these scam companies, they're still subject to certain regulations. Um, the BBC actually posed as a uh, as an investor, and when you are an investor in these in these companies, you put your money in, and it it's just gone. But they continue to show you the web page like it's there. Oh, I see. Right. Okay. So, but it, according to somebody who used to work with them, it's all a simulation. It's okay. essentially just you're just watching your money, uh, and actually they're they're pressuring you to make these investments, and the investments you're losing money on the investments, mm. and then when you lose money on the investments, one of the things they tell you is you should put more money into this so you can get you can make it back. Right. So they're exploiting the sunk cost fallacy. Right. Uh, and when people put more money in, it's just gone. But when the BBC poses an investor, they sent. $500 in Bitcoin into the uh, into this company, hmm. one of these companies, and it was immediately split into a bunch of little transactions and sent all over the place, hmm. right? Does that sound like anything to you? So- <laughs> Sounds like it was like a, like some uh, freshly laundered sheets. Right, yep. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably just went into a tumbler, Yeah. right? Or huh. a bunch of tumblers. Huh. Um, a lawyer who specializes in cryptocurrency and fraud examined the flow, the, the you know all the addresses, and said this suggests a large scale crime or organized crime. Well, I'd say if they've scammed people after over a billion dollars, that does classify them as large scale organized crime. Right, I would <laughs> I would agree with that. Yeah. So they have a they have a target in this story. Uh, the, the woman's name is Jane. That's not her real name. Uh-huh. Uh, but she had retired, taken an early retirement. As part of that early retirement, she got a two, uh, 20,000 pound bonus for retiring early. Oh. Uh, and at that time, uh, this company, EverFX, which is one of those companies that's one of those 152 companies, that was the company that was the uh, sponsor for the Spanish football team. Hmm. And uh, for those in America, when I say Spanish football, that's just soccer. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But she sent... Um, she sent EverFX a message through their website because she was thinking, hey, I can invest this. If I invest it wisely, I, I might be able to offset my pension with some extra money. Sure. Um, as soon as uh, somebody, as soon as she does this, she gets a call coming from Odessa in the Ukraine, and it's from some guy named David Hunt. Very common Ukrainian name, Dave. David Hunt, <laughs> right? Uh, but his accent sounded Eastern European, uh, she couldn't place it, but but Jane says, these people really sound like they know their stuff and how markets work. And she really bought into it. Hmm. Uh, and soon this guy was talking to her almost every day. And she invested about 15,000 pounds. And then the trades weren't doing well. And then the advisor, this hunt guy, 
advised to withdraw her money from the current one and put it into another one, BPRO-FX, where she could get more returns. Now, BPRO-FX is not in the UK. It's set up in, the, in, in Dominica, an entirely offshore entity, and is completely unregulated. Mm. So any hope you have of getting your money back from these guys is gone as soon as you put it into this other uh, this other company. Hmm. Uh, I don't. This this sounds to me like a like a uh, like a hybrid kind of organization. Now this article uh, goes on to put a, a, a few names out there, but one of the ones they put out there is this guy David Kezarashvili, and I hope I'm saying that right. I hmm. hate disrespecting people by mispronouncing their last names, but or their first names. But he served two years as Georgia's uh, defense minister hmm. and at some point in time was charged with uh, with stealing a bunch of money from them, uh, 5 million euros of government funds. Uh, he was, they tried to extradite him from the UK to Georgia, but the UK refused. Oh. So I, he's still in the UK. Huh. So while there are no publicly available documents that link... Uh, this guy to the the Milton network or the older network, right? Mm-hmm. They have run his name through the Panama Papers, and he comes up. Oh, interesting! As, as uh, which is uh, very interesting that, that mm. that's the way they that they've kind of found him on this. The BBC has done a lot of research on this. It this is a typical investment fraud, but it's at a massive scale, a massive scale. And is it, does the article go into why they are still running things? I mean, are, are they just out of reach of, say, Scotland Yard? There are some of these things that are uh, that are that come up like pretty legitimate, right? Like the the um, the first company that Jane was investing in was semi legitimate and regulated. Hmm. The money then was transferred to the Dominican company, and that's when she just totally lost everything. Interesting. So it's. I, I'm not exactly sure how this works. I don't even know if if the guys running this report know how it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a typical investment scam where people are 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 letting the greed their greed get the best of them here. Yeah. Um, they, just remember, there is no quick get rich thing. Uh, the people that got rich buying Bitcoin took a huge risk. Um, that is not something that's going to happen uh, frequently throughout your life. It will happen occasionally. <laughs> You'll see people who get in there and go, I should have done that. And, yeah. But, you know, and maybe maybe when things are are cheap, that's where you make your investments, right? Mm. Don't don't put tons of money into uh into places that are promising you very high returns. That's yeah. usually not good. I mean, that's yeah. what Bernie Madoff did too. Yeah. Well, I was gonna say do your due diligence. Your obviously, due diligence when, is- when talking to a financial advisor, but uh I guess the flip side to that is the people who got scammed by Bernie Madoff did that. Right. And yet we all know what happened with him. So <laughs> they actually yeah. recovered a lot of his money though, I think. Yeah. Mm. Um if I'm remembering that right. They were mm. able to recover like 85% of the money that he had taken. Wow. All right. Well, that's unusual. It is. All right. Well, we will have a link to this story in our show notes and of course we would love to hear from you if there's something that you would like us to cover on the show. You can email us. It's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. (laughs) 
Dave, our catch of the day comes from William. The email claims to come from Bob William of the William & William Law Firm. So it's Williams all the way down. <laughs> right. <laughs> What's interesting about this uh, that probably made it stick out is that it has a different uh, from and reply to address. Huh. Uh, but they're both listed as Bob William. Uh, it's just that the reply to address is just a Google, a Gmail account. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that is interesting. Huh. All right. Well, it goes like this. Dear sir and madam, I hope this email meets you peacefully. It took me time to summon the courage to email you, considering the sensitive nature of this transaction and my involvement. But I believe the best results in life are when tried. Not trying is the worst failure ever recorded on earth. <laughs> I am the principal attorney and founder of William & William Associates, London, United Kingdom. I'm contacting you today in respect to an unclaimed permanent life insurance policy in the amount of 12,820,000 British pounds with a reputable bank here in the UK. <laughs> Unfortunately, my client left no will before his death. I ask for your consent to be in partnership with me for the claim of this policy benefit. If you permit me to add your name to the policy, all proceeds will be processed on your behalf under a very legitimate framework and immediately transferred to your account in your country after agreement as endorsed by the two of us. I wish to point out that I want 10% of the money to be shared among charity organizations, while the remaining 90% will be shared equally between us. If you are interested, please respond to me for more details. Yours in service, Bob Williams, Esquire. This is a classic, Dave. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, it's like like in uh, on the old radio days. Oh, we're going to go one, with one of the oldies. Here's a good mm -hmm. one. <laughs> That's what this is. Okay. This is so good. It's just a uh, an insurance scam. Yeah. It's all that will happen if you respond to these guys is they will uh, is they will get back to you with oh. I need some fees for this. It's just mm -hmm. the, the precursor for an advanced fee scam. Right. And you can always say, well, just take the money out of the insurance. Oh, but the, the insurance hasn't dis, hasn't dispersed the money yet. And right. That will keep going on until you either realize it's, it's a scam or run out of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, a couple things here. Uh, I think as Americans, we tend to be charmed by Brits. Yes. So there's a sense of legitimacy there. Uh, most people tend to be charmed by Brits. Yes. I think uh, the fact that this alleged Brit is claiming that he wants to give 10% of the money to charity oh, that's just a, to reinforce the fact that he is a good guy. He is a good person. <laughs> a fine, upstanding <laughs> member of the community. Right, right. He's but probably yeah. not even British, Dave. No, I I count on it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> count on. In fact, in the from, uh, it's got a .br a domain. Any idea what BR is? It's Brazil. BR? Isn't it? Is it Brazil? I think yeah, so. That, that's that tracks. A, that's a um, yeah, Brazilian domain. Okay. Well, maybe that's a breadcrumb there. All right. Well, this is a good catch of the day. And again, we would love to hear from you. Our email address is hackinghumans at the cyberwire.com. We were talking about making users into an asset for security professionals. Simply put, users want to do the right thing. They're often just lacking the knowledge to do so. 
That's one of the reasons No Before has released Security Coach, a real-time security coaching tool that takes alerts from your existing security stack and sends immediate coaching to users who've taken risky actions. For example, imagine a user has visited a high-risk website or tried to open a document containing malware. Existing security tools will likely block that action, but the user might not understand why. Security Coach analyzes these alerts and provides users with relevant security tips via email or Slack, coaching them on why the action they just took was risky. Help users learn from their mistakes and strengthen your organization's security culture with Security Coach. Learn more about Security Coach at knowbefore.com slash securitycoach. That's knowbefore.com slash securitycoach. Joe, it is always great to welcome Carol Terrio back on the show. And this week, she has a conversation about AI with Vanya Schweitzer, who is a threat researcher at Cisco Talos. Here's Carol Terrio. Today, we have Vanya Schweitzer, Vanya being a threat researcher at Cisco with 20 years under his belt in the industry. What he thought about the industry and how it's going to respond to this whole new chat GPT and open AI and Microsoft's version and Google's version. And how is the security industry responding to that? <laughs> yes, uh, <laughs> it's, it's there's certainly interesting times. And um, I, I think security industry is one of the industries which is very happy to adopt kind of machine learning and artificial intelligence, like, let's call them. But but we started very early, you know, with, you know, anti-spam and classification with Bayesian filtering, which is basically a probability mm-hmm. filtering where where you would get, uh, re- by, if you receive an email, you would get a probability whether some email is spam or not. So it's it's a kind of machine learning, let's say. And, and from then on, we, we move, move onwards to uh, different, models or different ways of classifying malicious content. And I think, you know, that that will definitely continue in the future. There's almost no product today uh, on the market which won't use machine learning and artificial intelligence technology in in one way or or another. So with ChatGPT, I think we were all kind of surprised by by the simplicity of it and and how well it can generate uh, text that's uh, much more user friendly as opposed to let's say googling in a, in a search mm. engine i mean i mean we are so much used to uh, google and how we create those queries and what kind of results do we get that that now this sort of fundamental change of being able to describe what you want to some bot uh, that that comes back that essentially has the, the knowledge of the internet at some point um, and, and generates the most probable text and the most probable, probable output of what you described in the input is, is very fascinating. So do you think we might see a world where we're going to have basically automated threats being fought with automated security tools. That's what we're going. That's, that's the road we're going down, isn't it? Really, and we're going to sit back eating popcorn. The, 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 the <laughs> 
It's 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 difficult to say. We certainly are not yet there, and and even if you you can convince uh, ChatGPT to to write some malicious code, that code is 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 actually quite basic compared to the the, the state of the art of, of the malware code we are seeing today. So, and and right. a lot of time um, when you write something, you really as a user of it, you need to have such a good experience because the generated code is not always up to scratch and and generated text for example with certainly with some fact is is misleading and uh, some of the facts are are not certainly not correct and the sa- same weight is with the code so so far it, it's able to create some code it needs a lot of hand holding to create a little bit more advanced code but but a lot of user integration is is required now how it's going to develop whether chat gpt 10 or which whichever version comes will have this ability and certainly the the whole artificial intelligence uh, community is working on new algorithms and so you never know when a new revolutionary transformer will, will appear again yeah i think that's the big concern i have there's a lot of players in the market all playing with quite powerful little tools and who knows what's going to spring up where so we're all watching the everything all the time yeah we we see now that the chat gpt api um is 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 included in in many kind of security research and defending side the little projects but also on on the offensive side and trying to to kind of reuse the the knowledge there in adopting to the environment and uh, attacking some organization we, we we'll see what will happen but the fact is that the, the the technology they already have is still pretty reasonably effective for them so they don't have to go and reinvent something completely new at at the time yeah well as you say it's interesting time absolutely <laughs> thank you for sharing your worldview with us Vanya Schweitzer threat researcher at Cisco Talis this was Carol Terrio for Hacking Humans Joe what do you think Vanya makes a very interesting point, uh, and that is uh, we have been using AI in security for a while. Yeah. Uh, mostly with – it started in phishing, uh, but you know, it, as it's gotten better, as the, as the AI products have gotten better, they've worked their way into uh, just about everything that yeah. we have. There's some kind of machine learning classifier in just about every single – security product out there that handles huge amounts of data. And that's one of the problems with uh, with the field is that there are just huge amounts of data. <laughs> um, and of course, there are companies out there like Splunk that then have licensing based on how much data you're going to ingest into the device. Right. Right. It's really not, they're not licensing features. They're licensing how much data are you going to ingest. Yeah. That's what, I, I that's kind of an interesting thing. And Splunk is also one of these companies that was um, on, on the forefront of, uh, using AI for these things. Okay. The new model for searching that Vanya talks about sounds very promising, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, because one of the things I've noticed about Google is that it's just gotten terrible. <laughs> yes, I can't has. find a lot of... I'm, I'm just... Uh, I'm having a field day here being critical of Google from their phone to their search <laughs> engine. Um, I'm having... Uh, I, I have a hard time finding things in Google now because so many people 
have interests that are different from what I'm looking for when I use the same search terms. Mm -hmm. So that's how Google makes it. One of the, one of the things that goes into the algorithm of how Google makes their decision is how many people click on that link. Right. Um, in fact, I'm convinced that a lot of these search engine optimization companies just scroll through the Google results and then click on your link mm -hmm. in an automated fashion mm -hmm. over and over again. And that's how they, that's how they game the system. Yeah. But the idea of being able to describe what I'm looking for to, to something like ChatGPT and be more descriptive and conversational, that might be a great, great idea. Or certainly as an option, right? I right. mean, you know, you don't want to do away with the traditional search engines. Right. Yeah, because when, um, I, when I type in something like the name of my bank, because I don't remember what the URL is, I just want to get that. Yeah. I don't want to have to type, hey, what is the URL for... Uh, Billy Joe Jim Bob's bank. <laughs> right, right. Right. Yeah, but I agree. It's gotten very noisy out there. It has the gotten tra noisy. Traditional it's, search engines. It's very noisy. That's a good term for it. Yeah. Um, I like the discussion about having automated threats fighting automated defenses uh -huh. and the question that Carol asked about it. Um, I'll answer that. Yes, we are going to see that. <laughs> that is going to happen. It might right. not happen anytime soon, but it is going to happen. Um Remind Reminds me of the time back in the 80s on uh, David Letterman's show where they pitted a humidifier versus a dehumidifier <laughs> to see which one would win. And right. <laughs> it's just, we're, we're at a next level of that. But yeah, I agree. It's yes. inevitable. Yeah. It, it is. Mm -hmm. It is. Uh, the discussion about the quality of these chatbots and the code generators, uh, there's still a lot of errors in the output, uh, like in the chatbots, just factually wrong errors. Yes. Um, these things are only going to get better, though. Yeah. Um, I was looking or, or listening to somebody talk about the Turnitin product. I was having an academic discussion. And Turnitin is a plagiarism detection system. Ah, yes. That um, a lot of people use, a lot of universities use. And what that means is professors can run your stuff through Turnitin to see how much of your article or your paper has been plagiarized. Right. And it should come back with a certain amount of, of plagiarism, right, for your citations. Okay. It should be like 3% of this paper is, has, been, has appeared in other contexts. Mm -hmm. And then the professor should be able to look at that and go, okay, well, he properly cited that and improperly mm -hmm. cited that. And yeah. it may not be plagiarism, but it should show up. Right. But they also have a new product that uh, that – because of the way ChatGPT works, where they're identifying sentences written by these networks, these uh, or not networks, these uh, generative AIs. I don't yeah. know if they're networks or not. Yeah, uh, they're language models, is what they are. They're not yeah. networks, but they um, they think they're pretty good at doing that. Mm. So, my question about this would be: Are we already seeing that thing where we have AI fighting against AI here? Because I'm pretty sure that Turnitin is using a a, a classifier <laughs> to, to yeah. tell whether or not your paper is was written by another AI. Yeah, I it's interesting. I mean, I I the thing the reports I've seen so far have said that it, it, that there are problems with accuracy. I guess the way I look at it is that there's enough problems with accuracy of detecting this stuff that I wouldn't want to have my academic career teetering over whether or not an AI thought I had an AI generate something on me. Right. You know? So yeah. I, I think there needs to be a system. And this, this is what the universities are struggling with, right? Right. Because it's a new paradigm. Ben mm -hmm. Yellen and I were talking about this recently. You know, he, he teaches law. law. Right. And, and 
so he's trying to figure out, he and his colleagues are trying to figure out how do we not ban this, but have it be a useful tool for appropriate things and, and still be able to do the teaching that we need to do. And that's a big challenge in academia these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, again, our thanks to Carol Terrio for bringing us that very interesting interview with Vanya Schweitzer from Cisco Talos. We do appreciate both of them taking the time. We want to thank all of you for listening. And of course, we want to thank our sponsors at Know Before. They are experts in helping users do the right thing through new school security awareness training. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Our thanks to Harbor Labs and the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at harborlabs.com and isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.